0: Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the Communique. The print versions and these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the Coroner's Court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the Clinical Communiqué, focusing on acute care, the Future Leaders Communiqué, designed for recent health graduates, and the Residential Aged Care Communiqué, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition.
1: Hello and welcome to our podcast for the January 2021 edition of the Future Leaders Communiqué. I'm Brendan Morrissey, Consultant Editor for the Future Leaders, and I'm going to be joined for this episode by our guest editor, Dr Daniel Gross. Daniel, hello. Hi Brendan, thanks for inviting me to join you. Um, Daniel, let's start off with, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, So I'm currently an advanced trainee in general medicine at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Uh, I, I decided to pursue a career as a physician because I really have this innate desire to have a really deep understanding not only of the complexities of patients' health and disease, but the interaction of those uh, on their psychosocial wellbeing. And I think a physician really uh, has the opportunity to not only have a, 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 an understanding of holistic approach of someone's care, but the interplay of, uh, of health and disease on their psychosocial health. So that's something that I've been really enjoying being able to achieve on my day-to-day work.
1: I think those themes going to climate uh, during your edition as well. So this edition is a little different to our usual format. In addition to our editorials, we have a guest commentary from Miss Violet Tragoning. Can you tell us a bit about Violet's contribution and how it fits in with this edition?
2: Yeah, so all guest editors of the Future Leaders Communique do undergo a period of research. And that's not only just to have a, a deeper under, uh, appreciation of the case that they're reviewing, but also to have a better understanding of the issues that are in play in that particular case. And, and for me, it was during this period of research that uh, it became evident that Violet's uh, Violet, who is, is Mel's um, sister, actually instigated uh, the inquiry with the, with her state coroner.
1: I noticed that um, some of Melanie's artwork is included in the edition also. I assume there's some collaboration between yourself and uh, Violet to allow her guest commentary and the artwork to be included in this edition.
2: Yes, that's right. We were actually very fortunate to have the support of uh, both Mel, Mel's family uh, and her publisher. Uh, it was during the research period that I found that Mel was uh, a very avid uh, illustrator and very talented, and uh, she'd actually published a graphic novel. Uh, and I actually purchased this book uh, out of interest. And looking through this uh, this novel, it was. There were some very powerful and amazing illustrations, uh, all of which were focused on uh, mental health and and the struggles that one has with with mental health. And this was at a time during the COVID nineteen pandemic when uh, mental health was really at the forefront of people's minds. And I really wanted to be able to share some of those pictures uh, with uh, our readers. And fortunately, with the support of her family and publisher, we were able to do that.
1: Thanks for that, Daniel. We might now listen to uh, the. Editorial, guest editorial, and the guest commentary from Violet Tregoning.
3: Editorial from Brendan Morrissey. We are very pleased to publish this edition, the first Future Leaders Communique of 2021. This edition is unique. The case we examine is that of the coroner's inquest into the death of Melanie Tregoning, a talented illustrator his suicide was preceded by a series of miscommunications and system failures from the healthcare community as she repeatedly sought assistance with a mental health emergency. Our standard practice at the Future Leaders Communique is to anonymize the personal details of any patients involved in the coroner's cases we review. We have not done that in this instance. This is not a decision we make lightly and only proceeded with the family's express consent. We want this edition to reflect on what we as healthcare clinicians can learn from the coroner's inquest into Melanie Tregening's death, and also to mourn what we have lost. Melanie Tregening was a gifted artist with a bright future. A sample of her work is included in this edition with the permission of her family, to whom we are very grateful. Melanie's artwork is unique and engaging. Her graphic novel, Small Things, tells the story of a little boy who feels alone with the worries he has inside, but who learns that help is always close by. We would like to thank Melanie's family for not only allowing us to include a number of Melanie's works of art, but also for sharing their own reflections on the circumstances leading to Melanie's tragic death. We are grateful to her sister, Violet, for her contribution to this edition. Mental health reform, including timely access to appropriate mental health support for all members of the community, is one of the greatest challenges currently facing our healthcare system. It is important to appreciate the bravery of advocates such as Violet, those who have been deeply affected by deficiencies in our system and speak up to evoke change. It is incumbent upon us as clinicians to heed her reflections, to better inform our practice and prevent similar errors in future. Our expert commentaries for this edition are kindly provided by Associate Professor Jonathan Knott, Director of Emergency Research at Melbourne Health and Clinical Sub-Dean for Emergency Medicine at University of Melbourne and Dr. Evan Simmons, Unit Head of Consultation, Liaison, and Emergency Psychiatry at Alfred Health, Melbourne. Associate Professor Knott lends his expertise by describing some actions all clinicians can take to mitigate the risk of error in assessing and managing patients presenting with mental health issues. Dr. Simmons shares his tips to junior doctors in identifying, supporting, and caring for those patients presenting acutely suicidal. This edition has been made possible by the passion, insightfulness and persistence of our guest editor, Dr. Daniel Grose. Daniel is currently an advanced trainee in general medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. He is an aspiring general physician and geriatrician with an enthusiastic interest in the biopsychosocial model of health and disease. Daniel has put huge thought and effort into curating this edition, and we hope that it will act as a valuable resource on this important topic for our future leaders for some time to come. Guest commentary from Violet Tregoning. First of all, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to read this article. I take your interest to mean you understand the importance of mental health and will hopefully place it at the forefront of your practice. Mental health is complicated and hard to treat. The textbooks will only teach you so much. My sister Mal was not a textbook example of a suicidal patient. Mal presented well, was composed, had a meaningful work which she was passionate about, and no history of mental illness. It was stated at the time of the inquest that Mal was sent home to the safety of the family unit. Just because my sister had a supportive family to go home with did not mean she was safe. We were completely unequipped to handle Mal's illness alone. We believe Mal should have been assessed directly by a senior doctor and admitted to the hospital that night. The resident medical officer tried to be assertive and asked for Mal to be reviewed. However, he was told to be confident in his own assessment. He was clearly not confident to do so. I would urge all junior doctors to trust your gut instinct and demand an assessment from the specialist when required. Mal's sudden mental health breakdown and lack of treatment is an absolute catastrophe that has caused irreparable damage to my family. What is most devastating is that we sought help from the professionals who could have helped. Mal had been bounced from the hospital to general practitioner to hospital, all to no avail. Mal left this earth feeling defeated and that no one could help. My children will grow up, not knowing the love and creative influence of their auntie as I did. The world will never see what other incredible work Mel could have produced. As our future doctors, I hope that you'll be the ones to fix this broken system of mental health so that people like Mel are not left behind.
1: Our next section is the case summary. Daniel, can you tell us a bit about it? what you learned from researching this case and what your peers may take from it?
2: Mm. It, One thing that really resonated with me is that junior doctors often have to work in unfamiliar environments or are asked to work in new uh, challenging situations uh, without necessarily adequate uh, orientation to those new settings. And uh, I think we've all felt like we've struggled and, and Brendan, you may remember your experiences of, having been faced in difficult situations and not really knowing who to ask for, help for. Uh, and so all too vividly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I think for many of us, because in some ways we're all perfectionists and and we don't like to ask for help because it can be seen as a, a sign of weakness. We often reluctantly do so. And uh, I think particularly in this situation, in the case that's described here, uh, it's, it was very important that the junior doctors involved uh, did, did escalate and ask for help uh, and didn't have any hesitancy in doing so. And actually, I think that makes you a
1: much better doctor for, for knowing your limits. Um, I think that's a really important team to take from this edition. I might go ahead now and listen to the case summary for this edition.
3: Who Cares? From Dr Daniel Grose, Medical Registrar, St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. Clinical summary. Miss MT was a 31-year-old talented illustrator who lived with 5-alpha reductase deficiency, a genetic condition that affects physical sexual development. For Miss MT, this condition did not appear to have a significant impact on her childhood. Her symptoms were thought to be relatively mild and stable with hormone therapy. Miss MT was described as a very intelligent Independent yet reserved individual who was supported by her family and artistic friends. In the months leading up to her death, Miss MT had decided to take leave from her job as an illustrator to focus on completing her own graphic novel. Although there was no prior history of mental health concerns, it was during this time that her family noted a worrying change in her mental state with low mood, poor sleep, and disinterest in her usual hobbies. One day, Miss MT decided to seek help and attended the emergency department of a private hospital with the intention of being reviewed by her long-standing and trusted endocrinologist. However, after speaking with an ED nurse, Miss MT reported that she felt better and left, indicating that her plan was to return home. Miss MT subsequently went to a nearby beach with a plan to suicide, but was interrupted by a fortuitous phone call from her father. The next day, Miss M.T.'s parents became increasingly concerned with her withdrawn and irrational mental state and sought urgent review with the endocrinologist. On review, the endocrinologist agreed with her parents' concerns of depression and suicide risk, the endocrinologist advised that Miss MT be reviewed by her general practitioner to organise a mental health care plan for psychological support. This was arranged later the same day, but the earliest available appointment with a psychologist was almost a week away. Over the course of this same day, Miss MT became increasingly distressed as she realised her attempts at seeking help were not fruitful. Later that day, Miss MT's obvious despair prompted her parents to return to their local medical clinic. Miss MT was seen by another GP, Dr V, who was immediately alarmed by Miss MT's active suicidal ideation. Miss MT accepted the offer of seeking urgent psychiatric assessment at a nearby public hospital. Dr V organised for an ambulance transfer to the hospital and alerted an emergency medicine physician at the hospital with a verbal handover of Miss MT's expected arrival and high-risk mental state. At the ED, Miss MT was seen by a relieving resident medical officer, Dr K, who described a calm woman with suicidal ideation. Dr K concluded that Miss MT was at risk of suicide and at risk of absconding. Consequently, Dr. K attempted to contact the psychiatry liaison nurse as per usual protocol. After several attempts to contact the psychiatry liaison nurse without a reply, Dr. K was later informed that there was no psychiatry liaison nurse on duty at that time. Dr. K proceeded to contact the psychiatric duty medical officer, Dr. D. Dr. D was a psychiatry registrar working in a busy after hours role the primary psychiatric contact for the hospital. Dr. D initially dismissed the referral, instructing Dr. K to discuss the case with a psychiatry liaison nurse, unaware there was no one on duty. Following multiple conversations between Dr. K and Dr. D, a decision was made to discharge Miss MT with an outpatient follow-up. This was based on Dr D's impression that Miss MT was at a low suicide risk. Dr K was hesitant about this proposed plan and reportedly communicated that he didn't have the appropriate skills to make a complete psychiatric assessment. Meanwhile, Miss MT became increasingly anxious while awaiting a psychiatric assessment. In part, this was exacerbated by the ED environment as a patient in the bed next to her was audibly distressed due to excruciating pain. Dr. K explained the management plan to Miss MT. Miss MT was instructed upon discharge from the ED to immediately present to the hospital specialist psychiatric facility to submit a referral. Dr. K was under the impression that this process would result in Miss MT undergoing a psychiatric assessment on arrival. The mental health clinical nurse specialist, Nurse M, also informed Miss MT that she lived outside the facility's catchment area. Understandably, Miss MT felt frustrated. The nurse was unaware of the circumstances leading to this presentation and gave Miss MT a choice. The nurse could complete an assessment or Miss MT could present to an appropriate facility in her catchment area. Miss MT told the nurse she would present to the appropriate psychiatric facility the next day and left to return home with her father. Miss MT was found dead early the next morning. There were no suspicious circumstances. Pathology The autopsy examination confirmed evidence of wounds consistent with a self-inflicted injury. Toxicology analysis concluded a therapeutic level of Venlafaxine. There was no record that Miss MT had ever been prescribed this antidepressant. Given the circumstances, the coroner concluded the manner of Miss MT's death was by way of suicide. Investigation Miss MT's sister requested the coroner consider holding an inquest given her belief that the mental health service failed her sister. The subsequent inquest focused on the communication problems between health professionals and the psychiatry assessment process. There were two key instances where errors occurred in the transfer of information. The first instance was from the GP and ambulance staff to the ED. Both the GP and ambulance staff had made thorough notes relating to Miss MT but none of these were available to Dr K at the time of review. The inquest heard evidence that Dr V wrote a brief referral letter following a phone call to the ED as she was informed during her call that all the relevant information had been recorded. Dr V explained that she was under the impression that she was talking to a consultant psychiatrist rather than an emergency physician. Furthermore, the ambulance record, which contained important information about Miss MT's mental state, was not available. This led to Dr. K lacking key details of the circumstances of her presentation, which would have prompted a high degree of caution. The second miscommunication occurred between Dr. K and Dr. D. Dr. K was under the impression that that Miss MT was to go to the psychiatric facility for a comprehensive assessment. This was supported by his contemporaneous notes. Dr D gave evidence that he was not directly requested to review Miss MT. He also denied being aware of a number of key details from her presentation. This included her earlier presentations to three other health professionals the circumstances of her ambulance transfer to the ED for urgent psychiatric assessment as requested by her GP. Dr D stated that his decision not to review Miss MT in the ED would have been different if he had known these facts. Nurse M, an experienced mental health nurse, also admitted she was not aware of the many red flags in Miss MT's case. Nurse M emphasised that if a psychiatry liaison nurse was available, the usual process of a review in the ED would have occurred and Miss MT would not have been referred to the psychiatric facility. The inquest sought an expert opinion from an experienced consultant psychiatrist who suggested that Miss MT likely had a depressive disorder and required a comprehensive psychiatric assessment with a clear formulation of a management plan. In his opinion... The endocrinologist, the GP, and Dr K performed appropriate mental health assessments for their level of training, but the transfer of information was poor. He went on to suggest that the lack of communication of essential information, including warning flags, was not uncommon. He concluded that Miss MT's death was probably preventable given the multitude of opportunities for intervention. The circumstances surrounding Ms. Mt's therapeutic level of an antidepressant remain unanswered. Coroner's findings. The coroner concluded that there were a number of instances where important information was not communicated, which was compounded by a number of system failures relating to communication and the protocol for mental health emergencies. However, the coroner found that there were sufficient indications to prompt a more thorough psychiatric assessment than what was performed. This led the coroner to consider an adverse finding in relation to Dr D's conduct. In summary, it was the communication deficiencies, system failures and inadequate psychiatric assessment that resulted in Miss MT not accessing the help she needed. The key recommendation from this inquest highlighted the need for an appropriate therapeutic environment for patients presenting with mental health emergencies, such as a mental health observation area embedded in an ED, which is accompanied by appropriately trained staff. Author's comments. Miss MT was a young woman in despair, yet she had the desire and willingness to seek help. There are obvious red flags in this case, including a previous suicide plan, multiple engagements with health professionals, including an ambulance transfer for psychiatric review, an overt change in her mental state with withdrawal from her usual activities, and living with a chronic physical illness. Despite self-initiating multiple attempts to seek the help she needed, Miss MT became lost in a labyrinth of miscommunication and redirection at a time when she was vulnerable. Miss MT had interactions with a total of four medical practitioners in addition to the many other healthcare professionals that were directly or indirectly involved in her care. Sadly, this did not stop the tragic outcome. As a junior doctor, we must remember the fundamentally essential skill of effective communication. Gears Bar Format Introduction, Situation, background, assessment, recommendation or request provides a framework that assists in a clarifying information transfer and ensuring our request is understood. If there is a discrepancy between our request and the response, then a greater assertiveness approach should be considered to ensure our patients are not the subject of poor communication. Additionally, the nature of the junior medical workforce often results in working on unfamiliar positions in new environments. Appropriate orientation and familiarization with hospital-specific policies and procedures is crucial. On a systems level, there is increasing recognition of the need to have facilities that are conductive to best practice care. There is a growing amount of research into the best way to embed mental health teams into EDs and have appropriate spaces for managing acute mental health presentations.
1: So our next section is the expert commentaries. Um, I'd really like to know, Daniel, what you took from each expert commentary and what they add to what we can learn from this case. We might start with our first expert commentary from Associate Professor Jonathan Knott. The system is broken.
2: Yeah, I think uh, Professor Knott added uh, a really key point that we often overlook uh, in in a busy setting and that's that um, we often when we see patients that's often seen in isolation and we forget about their role in the community, their role amongst their family and their friends, uh, as well as pe- uh, the involvement of their healthcare practitioners, such as GPs have known them for many, many years. And, and that's really a key component to being able to, to have a really a true appreciation of, of uh, a patient suffering from mental health. And, and uh, Jonathan really uh, encouraged us to, to involve them collaboratively in, uh, in the care of people suffering from mental health concerns.
1: I might ask the same question of our second commentary. That was from Dr. Evan Simons, entitled uh, Care of the Acutely Suicidal Patient.
2: Yeah, uh, Evan uh, uh, is obviously a very experienced psychiatrist uh, and uh, is performing risk assessments on, on a daily basis. And I was really reassured when uh, Evan uh, highlighted the complexities that are involved with performing a thorough risk assessment. Junior doctors are often faced with situations uh, where they do need to perform risk assessments. uh, And uh, it it is a very challenging task. And uh, Evan uh, did uh, really highlight that it is a very complicated task and that we shouldn't be reluctant to ask for help in in being able to to make a conclusion with our risk assessments.
1: Great. Thank you. thats let's listen to both of our
3: expert commentaries. Expert commentary. The system is broken. From Associate Professor Jonathan Knott. The case of Miss MT exemplifies the challenges that people with a mental illness face when trying to access acute health support. At the very best of times, our health system is complex and often impenetrable for those trying to access care. Unsurprisingly, For those with additional challenges such as mental illness, complex psychosocial circumstances, or acute illness, it is even harder to seek the care required. Tragically, this has been recognized for many years and is the subject of a royal commission into Victoria's mental health system and is raised regularly by practitioners, organizations, and specialty colleges. Miss MT had a supportive family and a general practitioner who recognized the seriousness of her illness and not only directed her to the best available urgent assessment, but also contacted the emergency department directly to flag the need for urgent assessment. Many of those struggling in our system are doing it alone and are unwilling or unable to use the normal referral pathways. Even for Miss MT, By the time she arrived at the public hospital ED, she had been seen in a private hospital by various staff, including the specialist who knew her well and the initial GP. There were multiple potential opportunities to intervene and provide the care she was seeking and needed. Medical, nursing and mental health staff are mostly working at levels well over capacity. The environment is not conducive to the distressed individuals who require calm and time to settle and communications may be misplaced during the patient's journey. All these elements were present when Miss MT presented to hospital. Also, the whole system is set up for failure. There is fragmentation of care between GPs and hospitals, within hospitals and within the mental health system. Pre-hospital communication is conducted via a phone call to an ED doctor who is unlikely to be the carer of Miss MT. Written referrals are still faxed from GP to ED, a system that is both insecure and unable to ascertain the communication was received. Ambulance notes are prepared electronically but then printed out rather than linked to the patient's record. Within the ED, Multiple assessments at triage by secondary nurses and medical staff, social workers and mental health staff risk miscommunication at every step. At any point where the risk to someone like Miss MT is downplayed, they are likely to be discharged. Finally, the Victorian mental health system is funded and managed by geographic area, that is, based on where that person lives. As with Miss MT, being in the wrong area means being redirected, potentially to a service with no clinical or health record of Miss MT, and therefore no basis to prioritise her care. The intensive nature of mental health patients arriving in EDs can mean that a voluntary presentation may flag a person as lower risk than those brought in against their will. Mental illness is dynamic by nature and any opportunity to remove a person from the queue waiting for beds will result in discharge to community care. After prolonged waits for assessments and possible hospital admission, patients may be willing to leave despite this being against their best interests. Although all ED care is expected to be concluded within four hours of arrival, patients with severe mental illness who require admission may have extremely long waits to access hospital inpatient beds. ED stays over three days awaiting a ward bed still occur. No other patient group is so severely discriminated against due to the lack of resourcing. Sadly, the case of Miss MT is recognisable to anyone with experience working at the coalface of our healthcare system. There are proposals to prevent this happening but all will require major system changes. In the short term, several steps can be taken to avoid tragedy. 1. Listen to the patient and record the issues of concern they raise. Irrespective of how senior you are, make a note of any concerns you have for this person's welfare. 2. Seek collaborative history from the GP, family, the ambulance or police notes and from previous presentations. We trust our patients to provide accurate histories. However, for some people, this is not always possible or reliable. Three, each healthcare worker needs to take on some of the responsibility for mitigating risk. Ultimately, it may be that it is the consultant psychiatrist who determines if a need for admission will occur, but everyone prior to that person can evaluate the risk to the patient to the best of their ability and advocate for the best available care. Four, junior staff should escalate to more senior staff in their department if they feel that a poor decision is being made by someone else. This is especially so if it is done by anyone who has not personally seen and assessed the patient. Sadly, it is an accepted fact that people with mental illness are discriminated against? Does any other patient population presenting with a life-threatening condition, such as suicidality, get sent away to organise follow-up themselves? We admit patients to hospital for chest pain and neurological abnormalities with a far lower risk of mortality or morbidity than someone like Miss MT. The question that needs to be asked is why did she fail to get the care that she needed? If it is about a lack of resources, a lack of training, the low priority that mental illness receives, why is it that this has been acknowledged for many years, yet remains unaddressed? Expert commentary, care of the acutely suicidal patient, from Dr. Evan Simmons. In recent years, giant strides have been taken in Australia in raising awareness of the symptoms, signs, and impacts of common mental illnesses. Though still problematic, stigma associated with mental health problems has declined considerably. Suicide was something of a taboo topic for many years, but no longer. Federal and state governments have prioritised development and evaluation of evidence-based suicide prevention programs and set ambitious targets to meet. Reflecting greater community awareness, there is ample evidence of increased help-seeking behaviour by individuals. Telephone calls to non-government organisation helplines are growing, as are patients with mental health crises presenting to emergency departments across the country. Sadly, though, suicide remains the number one cause of death for Australians aged between 15 and 44 years. Several models predict increasing suicide rates associated with the COVID-19 pandemic and all of its sequelae. Access to specialist care is inconsistent across the country, often expensive and difficult to navigate. Despite those barriers, The majority of people who end their lives have seen a health professional in the weeks preceding their death, though not necessarily for identified mental health issues. Whilst distressing patients are increasingly likely to reach out for assistance, as health professionals, we need to focus on seizing those opportunities. For doctors in all settings, It is important to be on the lookout for signs and symptoms of depressive illness, which is highly prevalent among treatment-seeking adults. Misuse of alcohol and or other drugs is also an important driver of suicidality. If a patient is distressed or presents with depressive symptoms, it is appropriate to ask about suicidal thoughts, planning and access to lethal means, such as firearms. Patients often do not volunteer these thoughts without prompting and asking these questions does not increase risk. Having established that a patient is experiencing acute suicidal thinking, it is important to recognise that this constitutes a psychiatric emergency, arguably the mental health equivalent of acute severe chest pain. Hospital admission is often indicated, if not intensive community outreach. Decision-making in this regard is dependent on careful consideration of risks. Assessment of suicide risk is a challenging task. Contemporary literature suggests that tick box style risk stratification tools are not particularly helpful with respect to identifying individual patients who are at imminent risk of ending their lives. Such tools can, however, support non-expert clinicians in exploring important risk factors which might otherwise be missed meaningful suicide risk assessment and initial safety planning cannot really occur without development of a thorough understanding of the individual this should encompass biological and psychosocial vulnerabilities as well as protective factors This generally requires face-to-face review by a well-trained clinician. If barriers exist in this regard, it is appropriate for junior doctors to escalate their concerns. Whilst in the tragic case of Miss MT, the coroner appropriately identified miscommunication between health professionals as a contributing factor, communication with significant others and carers is also a key component of care for this patient group. Carers are typically an invaluable source of information with respect to events preceding the patient's presentation and provide critical guidance with respect to risk assessment and disposition. The coroner also commented on the need for an appropriate therapeutic environment for this patient group in hospital emergency departments, as well as provision of appropriately trained staff. These are excellent recommendations. Additionally, in order to optimise care of this patient group, there is a need for hospital emergency and mental health staff to develop collaborative working relationships over time. A shared understanding of the serious risk posed by the acutely suicidal patient and an agreed approach to their care can help to ensure that opportunities to intervene are not missed. Finally, the role of assertive discharge planning from the emergency department or psychiatric inpatient unit is critical. Available community services vary between regions and models of care are changing during the pandemic. That said, It is generally appropriate for patients who have presented to hospital with acute suicidal thinking to be followed up post-discharge by a crisis mental health team with capacity for daily contact over the first few days. In many jurisdictions, new teams are being created to provide outreach support to these patients over a more extended period. One example is the development of HOPE teams in Victoria, Which can remain involved with vulnerable patients for up to three months early evaluation of these programs appears promising in summary suicide remains a tragic enormously impactful and unacceptably frequent occurrence in this country whilst government leadership and changing community attitudes are encouraging Every doctor has an important role to play in identification and support of those at risk. Key messages for junior medical staff include one, assessment of the acutely suicidal patient should include discussion with significant others and carers wherever possible. Consideration of suicide risk is a complex task requiring integration of this collateral history with features of history and mental state examination. Specialist input is highly recommended. Two, when in doubt, escalate to senior staff. And three, discharge to the community should generally only occur following linkage with proactive mental health specialist support.
1: So our final section is comments from our peers. Daniel, what comments resonated the most with you and why?
2: Yeah, I, there was a comment that particularly resonated with me and uh, it was about uh, the, the importance of clinical communication. I really think that that's the underpinning uh, uh, lesson that we can all learn from this case. We, as junior doctors, often work in a variety of different settings and, and try and juggle the complexities of the healthcare system that we're working with. And uh, it's often we overlook the importance of uh, good, clear communication and, and that's where the majority of errors uh, do unfortunately stem from. And so I think that was just, it's just a pertinent reminder to finish on is that we, we do need to ensure that we do go back to basics sometimes and make sure that our communication is, is clear and, uh, and
1: well-received. I I totally agree and a perfect note to finish on. So let's finish with our comments from our peers.
3: Comments from our peers. Clear clinical communication is important, especially in the context of dysfunctional, fragmented and complicated systems. This may require you to have to go out of your way to ensure the right information is communicated and received by the other party. Escalate patients that you feel may be being mismanaged to more senior staff, no matter how difficult it may seem. In my experience, often, young doctors will cherry-pick away from mental health patients due to inexperience or a heart sink mentality. But like all areas of medicine, the more patients you see to develop mental state examination and risk assessment skills, the more comfortable you become. In patients presenting with mental health concerns, their family, friends and community are invaluable in putting their experiences into context and assisting with risk assessment. This case reminds me of the importance of reaching out and listening to a patient support networks. Considering the concept of information transfer as a source of failure, requires each doctor to individually take responsibility for the continuation of their patient's care. Whether this is a phone call, fax, email, or physically entrusting the patient to take a hard copy document with them, it is important to remember the responsibility to the patient continues even after they have left your care. I wonder if Miss MT was able to be assessed by an appropriately skilled clinician whether her story would be different.